It is true, dear friends, that a love so amazing and so divine indeed demands all our life, everything about us. It is part of the way God designed His salvation, that while it is a salvation offered to us freely through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we embrace and receive the salvation, it also demands everything moving forward so that we live a life that reflects His character, His cleansing, His renewal, His transformation. This morning, we are continuing our study through the book of Titus, chapter 3. I encourage you to open your Bibles. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. They are black cover, uh, look something like this. If you don't own a Bible uh, or if you don't have an ESV Bible, uh, we'd love for you to have it. I would love for you to grab it and take it home with you and, and enjoy it. And uh, we pray that uh, the Lord would speak to, to you through His Word whenever you open His Word. And we pray that that would be true even now as we gather this morning. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Page 999 in the Pew Bibles. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he self-condemned. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of of His word for our own hearts. Father, we are dependent upon Your Spirit to speak to us, to illumine this word to our hearts. We pray that the Spirit would exalt Christ in our midst this morning as Your word is being proclaimed. Help us to understand Your truth. Help us to receive it. Help us to embrace it. Help us to apply it to our hearts. In the name of Christ we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Several weeks ago when we started working in in a more slow motion through the doctrine of salvation from this passage, from the passage we read in chapter 3, I asked a question and I wonder if today you are better off answering that question, and now that we have spent three sermons, uh, and now today a fourth sermon on the doctrine of salvation. A few weeks ago, I asked you, how would you answer the question, what is Christianity about? Or what is the gospel about? And I gave you the challenge of, of trying to answer that question in two sentences. And the two sentences are in the passage that we have read earlier, prior to today, in Titus 3, chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. And this morning, 
We are looking at the implications of that salvation, the implications of, of what Christianity is about. And this morning, as we look at, at the implications, I want us, first of all, just to review what this salvation is about, uh, and then move on to thinking through and unpacking implications of this salvation for us. In, in verse 8 that we have just read, Paul gives a, a mini-section on the biblical uh, implication of this salvation. But he pointed out in the previous verses, he pointed out seven truths about our salvation. He pointed out in verse 3, our former way of life. What did God save us from? How were we before God saved us? In verse 3, Paul says we were foolish in our understanding of God. We were disobedient towards Him. We were led astray. We were enslaved to various passions. We were living in um, malice and envy, causing others to hate us and we hating others uh, as well. In other words, sin affects our understanding. Sin affects our behavior. Sin affects our relationships with one another and with God. The only way to escape our sinfulness is if God saves us out of it. Now, the source of this salvation, the second point we said about this salvation, is the source of this salvation is the goodness and loving kindness of God. The, the basis of this salvation, the third point that we said, the basis of this salvation is not anything that we bring to the table, but it's totally the sheer mercy of God. The reason, the only reason why God applies His salvation to our hearts is because of His mercy. But the fourth thing we, we, said, we said is, how is it that God saves us? Or how does God save us when He chooses to, to work His salvation in us? And the fourth thing, the fourth truth we said about this salvation is that God saves us by regenerating us. He renews us. He cleanses us. This is the internal transformation of our own nature. The way God applies His salvation to our hearts is by causing that inner change we call regeneration. The fifth thing we said about this salvation is the agent of regeneration. Who causes this regeneration inside us? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who cleanses us. When God pours out this, His Spirit richly through Jesus on us, He cleanses us. He renews us. He brings us life so that we are enabled to repent and believe in Jesus. And then the sixth thing we said is that God not only regenerates us, He not only brings us this new life and transforms us from within, but He also changes our legal status in our relationship to God. He justifies us. Our legal guilt before God has been dismissed, not because of what we have done, but because God counted the death of Jesus as a payment for our guilt. And God did more than that. He also counted the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, to be our righteousness. That's how God justifies us. 
But that's not all. There's a seventh thing God does when he saves us. He also makes us heirs. Heirs of his inheritance. So that one day we will enter in full possession of our inheritance. To be an heir means that we're part of the family. But to be an heir means there's still something to be given to us that we are not yet experiencing. We're not yet experiencing the full consummation of God's salvation. In that sense, our salvation is still in process because we're looking forward to the end of our salvation, the moment when God will return or He calls us to Himself and He will, be, he will make us or give us the full inheritance of our salvation. Well, friends, at the end of, of these seven truths about salvation, at the end of this description of how God saves us, we now get a practical implication or practical application for our salvation. If we have been saved by God in the past, in the sense of He, he regenerated us, He justified us in the past, we will be saved in the future in the sense that He will, he will glorify us, He will give us the inheritance that He promised and prepares for us in the future. What about the present? What should we do now, at the present time, now that we have been saved, and now that we are looking forward to the consummation of our salvation, what about now? Well, that's what our passage will deal with today. Verse 8 is a fitting conclusion about this doctrine of salvation because it unpacks several implications. And we will see these implications contrasted in verses 9, 10, and 11 as well. We will look at these implications and we can summarize them in two major points. For your benefit, think about two major bases or two major points as we look at these implications for our salvation. First one is what to insist on and why. What to insist on and why. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. When I was in seminary, one of the professors um, we had said this once, it's not what you teach, but what you emphasize. That shapes a generation of students. It's not what you teach, but what you emphasize that shapes a generation of students. Well, friends, in a similar way, the Apostle Paul commands Titus not only to teach certain things, but also to emphasize some of them in a very particular way. And what Titus is to do is not only teach these things, but he's also to emphasize them. It means you bring it up over and over and over again. You don't just teach it once and just assume that people get it and move on to other things. Paul says, this thing is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Now, what are these things that Titus was to insist on? Well, at the very least, we can look back and look at the very immediate truth that Paul has declared. Uh, the, the truth about salvation. The truth about how God saves us. 
for what purpose God saves us. Understanding how God saves us and why He saves us and what purpose He has for us is very critical for our Christian living here and now. Friends, one of the things that we have been insisting on here at Particles Baptist Church, teaching over and over again, is the truth of what is the gospel. We not only recited earlier in our service as part of our congregational reading, um, but we are encouraging various members in our congregation to study the gospel. I'm so glad that our, our students on campus meet every other week on campus to work through a study of a little book called What is the Gospel? Uh, recently, I just found out that our Thursday night uh, discipleship group uh, is going to start working through the book What is the Gospel? I want to encourage you, uh, even if you're a longtime Christian, go back to this truth and study it. Get deeper into it. There's so much benefit for our lives as Christians, for our own sanctification, and for our own evangelism. When we go back to the truth of what is the gospel, there's a, a book in the foyer by that very title, written by Greg Bill Gilbert. We would love for you to have it if you can't afford to, to, to pay for it. Uh, but get it. Um, meet with another brother or sister and read through it, discuss it, and get deeper into it. We want to make sure our people understand what is the gospel. We want to insist on these things. The next thing we want to insist on is not only what is the gospel, but what is a Christian. If we're going to understand the gospel clearly, we want to understand what that gospel produces. That gospel produces genuine Christians. Um, so we want to encourage people to understand what it means to be a Christian, especially in our society, where in, especially here in the South, where we live the danger of nominal Christianity. We want to be very clear about what a Christian is. And then the third thing we want to insist on is if we understand what the gospel is, what a, a Christian is, then when Christians gather together, they form churches. We want to understand what a church is. We want to insist on these things. And in the foyer, there's a number of other resources that we have available for you that we'd like for you to, to get deeper into. But here's the bottom line. We're not only teaching certain things, we want to insist on these things. Now, why should Titus insist on these things? Let's talk about the why. We understand the notion of insisting. Come back to them over and over again, get deeper into it. But why? Why does that matter? Well, answer uh, verse 8 gives us two answers why we should insist on these things. In the middle of verse 8, there is a so what. I mean, I mean sorry, uh, a so that. Whenever you see that phrase, so that, something should, should, should go off in your mind. Purpose, purpose, purpose. Here's why was, I just read something. So that. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is why we must insist on these things. Now the word, did you notice the word believe there? Believing God? This word has become so watered down in our society and, and defined in so many different ways that as a church we must be clear to define how or what we mean by the word believe in God. Many people simply associate the word believe in God um, with accept or acknowledge. They accept that God is true. They acknowledge that God exists. Friends, these definitions or these 
uses of the word believe in God does not mean that that person is actually a Christian or necessarily a Christian. The book of James says that even demons believe. The word believe can be used in, in different ways and not all of them refer to saving faith. Uh, here's another illustration. In the book of Acts, Paul speaks to King Agrippa and uh, he's trying to share the gospel with King Agrippa. Now Paul is in chain, uh, in chains and he says to King Agrippa at one point, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul says further, he answers his own question. I know you do believe. Well, friends, did that belief make King Agrippa a Christian? No. There are people who believe in God, they believe the Bible, but that does not mean that they are necessarily Christian. A more biblical definition of the word believing in God for salvation would be trusting in God, relying on God. For Titus, those who believe in God are those who experienced the regeneration that was described in verses 3 to 7. The people referenced in verse 8 so that those who believe in God are those who experience verses 3 to 7. Those on whom the whole God has poured out the Holy Spirit and renewed them, washed them, brought them to life with God. As a result of that work of regeneration, these people have repented of their sins. They have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. And now, Titus calls them those who believe in God. If you're not a Christian, you may not yet understand fully how this salvation works in us. And you may not understand all the language of verses 3 to 7. But if you understand that you are a sinner, if you understand and believe and, and accept that your sin deserves God's judgment, and if you turn away from your sin and trust in Christ's sacrifice for your salvation, then this salvation that God works in us can be yours. If only you would repent and trust in Jesus for your salvation. Friends, if you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or I encourage you to talk to another Christian who perhaps has invited you this morning to come here. I'd love for you to follow up on this because without responding to this gospel, you will not be saved. The only way for you to be saved is if you repent and trust in Jesus. God, in His mysterious way, causes our regeneration through the work of the Holy Spirit as we hear this good news of the gospel, as we hear the, the call to, to repent and trust in Christ, our hearts and minds are strangely wormed to it so that we are enabled to respond to it. And the evidence that He regenerates us is that we become convicted of our sin and we repent and trust in Christ to save us from the wrath to come. Friends, again, if this is your desire, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. For those who respond to this good news of the gospel by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus, they experience this inner transformation, this inner regeneration that God works mysteriously in our hearts so that 
we are now able to live a new kind of life. So that now we are able to devote ourselves to a bunch of good works, to a bunch of, of things that we once were not able to do. Now that we who believe in God may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Friends, this is a remarkable truth. That the goal of our salvation for the present time is that we would be committed to good works. The good works that Paul refers to here are those which come from a life of saving faith. Our people can, can fall in, in two ditches when we think about uh, good works and faith. Some hold on to a faith that produces no good works. Going back to the book of James, James says that faith which does not produce works is a dead faith. That is the faith of nominal Christianity. Paul emphasizes here that a devotion to good works is the evidence of a saving faith. Now, the other ditch that people can fall into is the, the ditch of those who pursue good works without faith. In our secular society especially, uh, people try to, to jump on the bandwagon of, of trying to restore the world, restore poverty, or, or, or fight injustice. Try to make this world a better place. But they do it intentionally without God. Try to make things better, but intentionally do it apart from God. And we can apply the same approach to our own lives. We may try to, to get better on our own. Get better apart from seeking God. Or get better by just getting into support groups or getting certain resolutions in our own lives. Some people might say, as long as I try to be a good person or seek to do good to others, I'm fine. I, I don't need God. Or I have my own religion of, of trying to do good. The truth of the Bible, dear friends, is that the Bible actually rejects both directions. Good works without a transformation that God causes in our hearts is self-deceiving. No matter how good we try to be apart from God, our existence apart from God was described in verse 3. How do you get from verse 3 to verse 8? How does a man who used to be foolish, disobedient, enslaved to various passions and desires change to become a man devoted to good works? The biblical answer is that God must cause and work an inner transformation inside us. And He causes that new birth. And once He causes that new birth, it sprouts up into a new life that abounds with good works. Friends, the goal is not simply good works, while forgetting or neglecting the root which causes these good works. No, we devote ourselves to good works because of our new faith in God. That's reason number one. The reason number one why we should insist on our salvation, on this salvation that God works in us, is so that we would be devoted to good works. But there's a second reason why we should insist on good works and on salvation which produces good works. It's because, look at verse 8, because these things are excellent and profitable. 
these things are excellent and profitable. Paul wants the churches of Crete to understand that the truth about salvation, the truth which changes us, is indeed excellent and profitable. And it's profitable not only for us, it's profitable for people. It's profitable for others to see that indeed the power of the gospel is able to change. It's profitable for the world outside the church to know that the power of the gospel is able to transform a person, not just on the inside and keep it there and not know what exactly has happened to the person, but change that person on the inside in such a way that this person is different. He's different in the way he, he talks to his colleagues at work. He's different in the way he's a boss managing his team around, uh, below him. He's different in his neighborhood. He's different as a citizen. He's, there's something different about this person. That is excellent and profitable. Friends, this beauty or excellence of a faith which produces works is not seen as beautiful by all people. There are some today who would find it more beautiful and excellent to try to have a faith of their own devise and at the same time have their own sinful ways. There are people who think that you can have it both ways. Have faith, faith in God, and at the same time keep doing what you're doing, your own sinful ways. But that's neither beautiful nor profitable for people, even though you may think it's beautiful and profitable. Having a faith that leaves us in our sinful patterns is not profitable at all. If we believe what the Bible says about our sinful state, that we are enslaved in our sin, then having a faith that does not free us from that enslavement, oh friends, is neither excellent nor profitable. And it's neither profitable for you nor for others. Friend, I wonder which faith you consider as being more excellent and profitable. The faith that leaves you in your sin or the faith that changes you even though calling you to change might be hard and painful and unpleasant. I wonder which is more excellent and profitable in your own eyes. Titus wants us to be clear and to insist, insist on the truth of God's salvation, which is indeed able to change the core of our beings, is indeed able to change us on the outside as well. It overflows in outward changes, and then it is excellent and profitable. This is what we are to insist on and why. Now, the second truth, what should we avoid and why? If we focus on what do you insist on and why, let's focus on what should you avoid and why. Friends, sometimes it's not enough simply to say what you need to pursue. It is helpful pedagogically to say what you need to stay away from so that we don't mix and we don't try to create a, a gray area of, and redefine what we are supposed to insist on or, or pursue. Here, for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at what to avoid and why. In verse 9, Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, 
for they are unprofitable and worthless. What exactly was Titus to avoid? And what was he uh, supposed to encourage the churches of Crete to avoid? Four things. Uh, now, these things overlap a little bit uh, for, for the situation in Crete. Um, these things, uh, first of all, are foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies. Now, does this mean that every controversy is foolish? No. There are theological controversies, biblical controversies, that must take place for the protection of the gospel. Jesus, for instance, at times, found himself uh, having theological controversy with the religious leaders of his day who, tr who missed, that, missed what God actually said in his word. The church in the first few centuries had a number of theological controversies about, let's say, the divinity of Christ. Others about the humanity of Christ. Others had theological controversy about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. In recent centuries, the doctrine of the atonement, which speaks about the meaning of the death of Christ, has been questioned and redefined. And the church had to fight for the purity of the faith as revealed in the Bible. Friends, even in our own denomination, in the past five decades, just, just about five decades ago, the Southern Baptist Convention had to go through a season of purging false doctrines, theological controversies that have infiltrated the, the churches, particularly about um, the, the truth and the, the inerrancy of the Bible. And, uh, and the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention had to work through a, uh, a significant and a painful time of recovering the truthfulness and the reliability and the inerrancy of the Bible. Well, friends, in situations like this, to be silent for the sake of unity is to compromise the truth that has been entrusted to us. So not all controversy is foolish. But there are some controversies that are foolish. And what Titus is encouraged to avoid is controversies that are foolish. The description of foolish, we've seen before in verse 3, when Paul said, we were once foolish. The word foolish, in particular the way, the way Paul dresses it in this letter, relates to lacking spiritual understanding or lacking to understand the ways of God. So what falls under foolish controversy? Well, the answer is anything that does not help us understand the ways of God better as revealed in the Bible. Anything that muddies the waters or actually distracts us or misguides us in understanding God and His ways. Now, some theological truth uh, are more deep than we are able to understand. That fair. And we may not be ready yet to delve into all the depths of the knowledge of God. So I want to encourage us to be sure that we don't misunderstand or confuse depthness with foolishness. Um, some people might be at the beginning of their faith, their knowledge of God, and they might think that the deep truths of God are just, because they're not understandable, they're, they might be foolish to try to get into them. Well, friends, I encourage you, not, don't confuse depthness of the knowledge of God with foolishness. Uh, at the same time, recognizing that there are some controversies that do not encourage us to get to know God better, 
They might actually encourage us to keep it very superficial or actually have a misguided view of God, a distorted view of God. We want to be careful about those. Also, what's foolish, I love how one of the commentators said, Paul calls them foolish uh, controversies, not that at first sight they appear to be such, but because they contribute nothing to godliness. Foolish controversies are those which don't encourage you to grow in godliness, but the opposite. So ask yourself, when you find yourself in a particular controversy, ask yourself, is this controversy helping me or others to understand God's ways as revealed in the Bible? Is it helping me in promoting godliness in myself or in others? If no, then avoid them. Avoid genealogies. This was a particular situation uh, in the first century. Uh, some people were interested in genealogies in the first century as a, a means to get spiritual benefit. They thought they had spiritual advantages by figuring out their ancestry. A very foolish idea, a very speculative idea, nothing in the Bible about it. And Paul says to Titus, just avoid them. Don't, don't give your time on them. Also, avoid dissensions or arguments or strife. Now, friends, this cuts closer, doesn't it? We may not be tempted by genealogies, but what about being tempted to fall into dissensions, arguments, and strife? We see this, this, this vice of, of being argumentative, divisive, or causing strife uh, be brought up in so many passages in the New Testament. It can happen uh, in a family. It can happen in a church. It can happen between friends. Sometimes people ask questions not with a motivation to understand, but with a sinful ambition to cause division. They want to argue because they either reject the truth or because they want to have it their way. And Paul says, avoid dissensions. Lastly, avoid quarrels about the law. This was a particular situation in the churches of Crete, as we saw in chapter 1, uh, where there were people who were empty talkers. There were people who uh, tried to dissuade others, especially people from the circumcision party. Apparently, these are some of the ones who were causing these quarrels and, and, and dissensions. Paul says, avoid all that. Now, why should Titus avoid them? Why? Look at verse 9. For they are unprofitable. They are worthless. Do you remember verse 8? Why we should insist on some things? Because they are excellent and profitable. Now, Paul says, avoid other things because they are unprofitable and they are worthless. They add nothing to our knowledge of God. They add nothing to our pursuit of godliness. Avoid them. So ask yourself, dear friend, is a particular thing, issue, helping you in your walk with the Lord? Helping you get closer to the Lord? Helping you get closer to walking with the Lord? Or is it causing you to get further away from the Lord? Whatever is causing you to get further away from the Lord is unprofitable, is worthless. Avoid it, whatever that might be. Now, if you're not preoccupied with the aim of, of growing in the knowledge of the Lord, if you're not preoccupied with the aim of growing in godliness, friends, you may not know how to discern between what's profitable for you and what's not. There are some Christians, and perhaps even among us this morning, who can't make the distinction between what is profitable for them and what is not. Because what they consider to be profitable and useful 
is something other than growing in faith and godliness. What is profitable for us and excellent is not up to us to determine. Paul, in verse 8, said, these are excellent and profitable. These things, it's not up to us, to me or to you, subjectively, to determine what is profitable and excellent for me and you. These things in the Word that were just given to us, that's why we must insist on them. Let me ask you, do you allow other people to tell you what to avoid? Think about it. Do you allow other people to speak into your life and say, you must avoid these things? How would you react if if someone came so clearly and just in a conversation with you, he would say, you must avoid these things. Here's four things you must avoid. Not one, four. Do you recognize, dear friend, that that's what Titus just received from Paul? Avoid, Titus, you're a pastor. I left you there to to continue to shepherd these churches in Crete, to establish elders in them, to get them going, to get them on a safe and healthy track as churches. You too must avoid these things. Friends, even a pastor must hear those words. All Christians, at some point or another, will hear and should hear these words. Avoid these things. And if you surround yourself by people who never tell you what to avoid, those people are no benefit to you, my dear friend. If you surround yourself with people who only tell you the good things and never give you the warnings of what to avoid, find yourself another set of friends who will love you enough to keep you away from the ditch of of, of going in a wrong direction. Seek friends. Seek a community of, of Christian friends who will be honest enough and courageous enough and will love you well enough to tell you, avoid these things. Friends, I wonder if you allow other Christians to speak truth into your life, encouraging you what to pursue and warning you what to what to avoid. Paul tells Titus not only what to to avoid such controversies, dissensions, and arguments and quarrels, but he also tells him to distance himself from people who are committed to causing dissension. Verse 10, Paul says, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Now, who is Paul talking about here? He remember the situation in Crete where in chapter 1 he speaks about false teachers and their followers who were insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced, Paul says. They must be silenced. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families. In other words, in these churches, false teaching was creeping up. Titus and the elders he was to appoint were to silence these false teachers. But what do you do if they won't listen to the silencing? What if they keep promoting the false teaching? What if they keep causing divisions in the church? What if they keep going in the wrong direction they are promoting? Paul says, have nothing to do with them. The verb, have nothing to do with them, can also be translated, dismiss them. 
break fellowship with him. Friends, we might be surprised to hear in a church and from a pastor and instructions to a pastor that uh, the church and the members of the church ought to initiate the break of a relationship with anyone. When should we do it? We should do it after one or two warnings. This means that before we break fellowship, Christians and the church ought to give such warnings when necessary. Friend, if you would be the recipient of such warnings, decide now that you will take them to heart and take them seriously because they are for your benefit. It's not fun and it's not good to wait until you receive them to decide what to do with them. Consider now that such warnings are to be given in the church. Such warnings are to be given by Christians and among Christians. This is normal. It's not unnormal. Now, why should we break a relationship? Why should we give the warning and eventually break a relationship? Well, first, look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. In other words, there's more going on in a person's life than merely stirring, stirring up division in the church. Such a person, something has happened inside of them. He's warped and lives in sin. The word warped also means ruined or corrupted. Think about it. Think about the, the, the I-85 illustration that happened just this past week in Atlanta, Georgia, where a whole highway collapsed. Ruined. Such a person, this is a picture here. Such a person is, is ruined, collapsed spiritually. There's something significant has taken place. We're dealing with someone who who has turned away from the ways of God. And someone who continues to persist in his sinful ways, after, especially after being warned, proves to be corrupted. It is a very dangerous state to be in. That's why we, we should give the warning, not just once, but twice. It is so serious that if after the warnings are given, the person chooses not to turn away, not to turn back, that the church, Christians, Church leadership is encouraged to remove that person from the fellowship of Christians. And a church may have to do that. Now, some might think, wow, that's, that's very judgmental. Paul has a different diagnosis. He says the person who is in that state is already self-condemned. His own decision to continue to live in active sin after being warned once and twice Bringing condemnation upon him brings condemnation upon himself. It's not that the church condemns such people, but they are, they are already self-condemned. And our break of fellowship is a reflection of that person's self-condemnation. There's some people who say, Whoa, Pastor, wait. I'm not ready for this. Uh, that, is, that is very unloving. Not only is it judgmental, but it's very unloving. To remove someone from membership or, or to tell to another Christian we can no longer have fellowship, we can no longer have a relationship because you continue to live in sin, that is very unloving to do. But friends, we have plenty of instructions about that in the Bible. But the notion that it's unloving to kick out someone from fellowship or from the church because of their continued unrepentant sin I want, you, I want you to recognize 
It is not unloving. It is compassionate to do so, to point out the depth and the reality and the seriousness of their ruin. Remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed God? God kicked them out of Eden. Remember when Israel continued to disobey God? After God brought them out of Egypt and gave them the land of, of Israel, the land of Canaan, and they still went in their own ways, and God sent them prophets to warn them. And after the warnings were ignored, God kicked them out of the land. It is not unloving to sever that connection, to remove someone out for the sake of helping them recognize the depthness of their ruin, the seriousness of their ruin, and the eternal consequences of their ruin if they don't return back to the Lord. It is the most unloving and uncompassionate thing to leave someone in their self-deception and do nothing but just let him think that it's okay. It's the most unloving and uncompassionate thing for their eternity. Friends, have you ever had to tell another Christian that you are no longer able to relate to them because of their persistent sin? And if that has ever happened, or if it will ever happen in the future, please take such warnings seriously. They are meant for your benefit. They are meant for your spiritual restoration to come out of the ruin that you have put yourself in, self-condemned, and come back to the Lord so that the Lord can indeed restore you. Oh, friends, we have looked at the doctrine of salvation for the last three weeks, and today we are looking at the implications of this doctrine of salvation. And the implications are this. What, ins what do you insist on and why? Insist on the reality that when God saves us, He transforms us from within, and that transformation produces the new life, the new work, the devotion to good works, and then insist on the fact that these are good and excellent, but also avoid, avoid that which is unprofitable, avoid that which is worthless. And when people persist in their unprofitableness, when people persist in their worthless way, in their sinful way, have, have the love for them to call it out in love, in compassion, so that the Lord might restore them, so that God's people would be a people who reflect well the salvation that God has worked in us, the salvation that God continues to manifest in us in the present, the salvation that God will give us in the future as He will give us His inheritance. May we be a people who reflect that salvation well. Let's pray. Father, help us to take to heart the implications of what we have heard today, the implication of your work of salvation in our lives. May we be a people who reflect your power at work in us in a way that glorifies Christ and your kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.